0: hi friends and fellow book lovers well my guest this week is the brilliant charismatic funny self-deprecating and deeply talented william h macy who i have the privilege of knowing as bill Uh, Bill is an American actor, writer, and director. He's written films, TV series, and screenplays. He's won two Emmy Awards and been nominated for 15. Uh, He's won four Screen Actors Guild Awards and had a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in Fargo. I interviewed Bill in person for the first time in three years, actually sat down opposite a fellow human being and talk to them about their books. We read his beautiful home in the hills of Hollywood, and it was on the afternoon of his 15th Emmy nomination, this time for his performance as Frank Gallagher in Shameless. Here's Bill. Bill, this is such a pleasure and an honor and a thrill, and so fun, as I said, to be actually doing this in person. Uh, My listeners will be used to hearing me just clattering around in my shed and this is <laughs> me actually at Bill's beautiful home having just had a tour of their gorgeous gardens and uh this is fun fun to see you fun to be in person fun to do this face to face I've almost forgotten how to I know. have a conversation face to face I <laughs> think we're through the woods I hope so we went to a restaurant yeah
1: people served us
0: how was that
1: it was great
0: was it <laughs> did I people know. in masks serve you
1: um, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm doing another show, and the protocols are just as strict as they mm. were before Shameless ended, but it's getting better.
0: Mm. We're getting there. Yeah. Did you read during the pandemic? Was that something that you gave you comfort or solace or anything?
1: I must have. Mm. Um, uh, oh, yes. For a brief time, I thought I was going to get to play Mark Twain. Oh, wow. It's since fallen apart. He uh-huh. wants to do it. But um, there was a time when we were trying to figure out where in the story we would pick up our story. And um, uh, Twain is reputed to have written USS Grant's uh, memoirs. Um, I didn't know which that. Which are great. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it turns out he didn't. Okay. But he did publish them, <laughs> and he published them geniusly. It had never been done. He got he he did uh, expensive, almost uh, literally leather bound copies of Grant's memoirs of the store of the war, and then he got former um, Civil War soldiers in uniform to sell them door to door. Oh, brilliant! And sold millions of copies. <laughs> and Grant. Because of all the the scandals in his administration, was poor as a church mouse, and he died well off.
0: Mm. Took care of his
1: family. That's That's the
0: train. That's
2: amazing.
1: So I read Grant's memoirs, um, this other guy, um, and then something about Reconstruction in the South. And then I was reading. I sort of reread Huck Finn and Mark Twain. His trip to Hawaii, which he called, I can't remember. Hmm. So, a lot of Hmm. Twain thinking I was going to play Twain.
0: Hmm. Was it fun?
1: It was. He wasn't as funny as I Uh remembered. And also, he made uh, a name for himself by taking breathtaking pauses on stage. I mean, you could go out for coffee and come back, and he still
0: <laughs> So you were listening to record, record I mean, there audio record,
1: recordings, but that's what they talked oh,
0: about. Oh, one
1: famous one where something went wrong at the beginning of the show, and um, he was waiting, I think, for a light cue. So he walked out on stage, and he looked at the audience, and he didn't speak for about a minute. And then finally people started to laugh, and then finally it brought the house down. They were <laughs> roaring with laughter. And then he started speaking.
0: Uh, You didn't have to say a word. Wouldn't that be nice? I'd like that. Let's talk about your books. So tell me how it was picking them. How did it feel choosing them? Was it easy? Was it hard? Did some jump out at you?
1: It's a great question. I didn't grow up as a reader. My parents weren't readers. I never remember my mom reading a book. My dad would read every once in a while. But interestingly, he'd make a a big deal of it. He'd sit in the living room in a chair he never sat in, conspicuously reading. I think he was trying to teach us something. Sure. So I'm not a reader uh, by habit, unlike Felicity, who reads a book Mm -hmm. every time she goes to the bathroom, she Mm -hmm. comes out with a new book. And um, um, I realized that books that have stuck with me are not fictions. They're how we got here books. Mm. Um, And you'll see that reflected Mm. in my list. It's books that explain how humans did what they did, how we built that, why we are the Mm. way we are. Um, I'm a big fan of arcane knowledge and words. Mm. I love uh, knowing the genesis of words. Words. And uh, I've read a lot on the Civil War, and a lot of our words came from the Civil War, and Mm. I just love collecting that stuff, Mm. you know, hookers.
0: Tell me, what's the origin of hookers?
1: These women would follow the troops around, and all the generals would chase them off, except for uh, General Hooker. He said, I think these boys need some rest and relaxation. They They need something. So all the women became hookers' women.
0: Wow, that's great. Hookers. That's great. Awesome. Awesome fact. Thank you.
1: Bootleggers.
0: Tell me that one.
1: We tried prohibition in this country several times, and there was a big success in the 1800s. About six states prohibited alcohol. And, man, the ink wasn't dry on the proclamation then these guys would come around, they'd make a bladder that went down their trouser leg, and they had a, a hose on it, and you'd walk up to them and you could fill your bottle from them and get them money. Oh, and they wow.
0: would have bootleggers. Oh, wow. The were Full of liquor. Good. Great. I love that. Yes, me too, me too, me too. I have several of those from one of your books coming up. All right, let's start with the first one. This is fun. I didn't know anything about this little book. So your first book is The Kid Who Batted A Thousand by Bob Allison and Frank Ernest Hill. It was published in nineteen fifty-one. I found a paperback that you could buy for nine hundred and two dollars. So if you happen to have one of those lying around, you got a little a little fortune on you. I don't have mine. Uh, tell me about who you were, how old you were, when you found it.
1: The reason that's my first book is that was my first book. Mm-hmm. Um, remember the Scholastic magazine? No, you don't. I, I do know, this, of
0: um, course. I still get my kids' books from Scholastic.
1: Scholastic had this thing, and you go home with the thing mm-hmm. and you'd say, "I want you this." You still and this. do, and your mom would give you thirty-five cents mm-hmm. for each book. And so I did it, and I think I bought about three or four books, and I never read one. And then this one, for some reason, I picked it up. The, the kid that batted a thousand, and I read it in about three sittings
0: how old were you do you think i'm
1: gonna say i was uh 10 Mm -hmm. maybe younger maybe 11 and i was gobsmacked it was 65 pages long i read the whole thing cover to cover i'd never read more than two pages in my life
0: were you gobsmacked at your ability or the story or both
1: That I, one could sit down and read that many pages. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't know one could do that,
0: as (laughs) they
1: say in Hamilton. And, um, and then the story hooked me. I think that's why I kept going. And it's about this kid who could any, hit any ball. He could hit it no matter what and hit it foul. He couldn't hit it out of the park, Mm -hmm. but he could connect with it and hit it foul. So he was the champion of his, High school team. And then if memory served, he got drafted right into the majors mm-hmm. because he would go up to bat and they would throw everything, fastballs, curveballs, sinkers, everything that professionals could throw. And he could just touch the bat on it and it would go into the dirt.
0: Is that what hit it foul means? Because I know nothing.
1: Hit it foul means, you know, it's a, the baseball thing is a diamond. yeah. So if you're over here or over here, mm-hmm. that's a foul ball. Right. And you can hit foul balls as long as you want. Um, If you you can hit foul balls as long as you want, you can walk because Mm -hmm. you get four. um, If you get four balls that aren't in the strike zone and you don't swing at them, you get a base. You Mm -hmm. go to first base. Mm -hmm. If you hit it and you can run to first base without getting tagged, you go to first base. But what he would go for is four balls that weren't in the strike zone. And the way he would do that is just hit them foul until mm-hmm. the pitcher was exhausted. Mm-hmm. He sometimes had to hit throw 20, 30 pitches. Mm-hmm.
2: And this kid, everyone that was in the strike zone, he'd hit
1: it foul, and he would just wait for a ball that was out of the strike zone. So he got on base every single time. Mm-hmm. That's what batting a 1,000 means. Right. You're on base every time you're up. And, of course, the climax of the book was, let me hit it, coach. I can hit it. I really want to hit it. And the climax of the book is he, he taps one. I don't know if he hit it out of the park. That stretches credulity. I think he was 14 years old when he was in the majors. Mm-hmm. But he got on base with a fair and square hit. And if memory serves, he decided I've had enough of baseball when he became a chicken for him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that wow, sounds my. right. I read the synopsis of it. That 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 resonates. Were you a baseball player? Was that why it- Well enough to um, to know what batting a thousand meant? <laughs> yeah,
1: and enough enough to know, oh my god, this is genius. Who thought of this? Mm. This is I I never considered that you could do that. If you could just hit the ball every single time, sooner or later you get on base. And um, he was a reluctant hero. Mm. Mm. He wanted to, you know, uh, the classic story of a kid with a magnificent gift, but he wants to do something else.
0: Right. He wants to be the other thing. Test himself. Yeah, yeah. That's lovely. Do you remember your parents being excited about you reading? Was it momentous? It was clearly momentous for you. Was it momentous for them, I wonder.
1: No, I have no memory of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I must have said with wide eyes, I just read a book. <laughs> the time I do remember, my mom um, I, re- I think I put Jack London on there.
0: Yeah, he's your next book. We can move on to that. You want to talk about that one?
1: Yes. I guess I was 13 or 14. I read Call of the Wild first, and I was taken away. My wife... Swears I was a dog in a former life because I know a lot about dogs. <laughs> also, I fart a lot.
0: Um, well, so you have really good hair.
1: I have really good hair. <laughs> I seem to. I've picked all our dogs, and we've had magnificent dogs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just seem to know a lot about dogs. I work for a veterinarian, and when I read Call of the Wild, and uh, Buck is the hero dog. Mm big St. Bernard and he gets kidnapped mm. oh my god they had me right there mm. and he's taken to the north and he has to fight his way but the he wrote it from the point of view of the dog and oh I was I was gone hook line and singer, because mm. I just loved it
0: and you were 13 or 14 when you read that I'm gonna say uh, yeah yeah it's an incredible book. I hadn't read it for ages, and I pulled, I pulled it up and pulled out a couple of extracts from it because I had forgotten whose point of view it was written from. And I, what I loved was, I'm going to read a bit from the first and from the last chapter, so you see what the, the journey is that yeah. Buck goes on, and and how quickly it kicks off. That's what I loved was reading and realizing. Jack London's pace, the speed with which it happens is so vital and alive. This is one of the opening paragraphs. It talks about where Buck begins. During the four years since his puppyhood, he had lived the life of a sated aristocrat. He had a fine pride in himself, was even a trifle egotistical, as country gentlemen sometimes become because of their insular situation. But he had saved himself by not becoming a mere pampered house dog. Hunting and kindred outdoor delights had kept down the fat and hardened his muscles. And to him, as to the cold tubbing races, the love of water had been a tonic and a health preserver. I just love that as an opening introduction to him, and then by the end, because the process of Buck is is one of wilding, one from yeah. becoming a domesticated, you know, semi aristocrat to becoming wild, right? Yes. The, the the savagery of it, and then this is from one of the final uh, This is the final pages of the book, and where is it? It's this one. Oh, here we go. Quickly as a husky dog could leap to defend from attack or to attack, he could leap twice as quickly. He saw the movement or heard sound and responded in less time than another dog required to compass the mere seeing or hearing. He perceived and determined and responded in the same instant. In point of fact, the three actions of perceiving, determining, and responding were sequential but so infinitesimal were the intervals of time between them, they appeared simultaneous. His muscles were surcharged with vitality and snapped into play sharply like steel springs. Life streamed through him in a splendid flood, glad and rampant until it seemed that it would burst him asunder in sheer ecstasy and pour forth generously over the world (sighs) i just love that they're like you can hear it in the prose right from the languor and the like sated elegance of this early dog to this where the muscles are bursting off the page if
1: memory serves there are these moments in both books where this domesticated dog has a distant memory of a wild dog
2: hmm. of
1: himself mm-hmm. as wild. Mm-hmm. Um, his ancestors, mm-hmm. it's um, what do they call that? Is that a priori knowledge? Just,
0: yeah. Right. I think so. Yeah.
1: Before you were born, Wait. things that you were, there were memories that are in your DNA. Um, in In White Fang, they follow... I could have hallucinated this, but I felt like he... He overlapped the story of Buck and Call of the Wild and that Buck had met a wolf, a Mm she-wolf. Is that correct? Yes, that definitely does. And then Buck died Mm -hmm. and it picks it up with White Fang. And I think... It was when Buck died that I lost my shit.
0: Did you?
1: Oh, man, I was weeping like a baby. And I went to my mom. She said, well, then don't read those books. They're going (laughs) to upset you. That's the first disconnect with my mom. I think she's missing a point here. I may be a kid, but it's happened to me a couple of times reading books. I'm just wondering. Do you mind? If no, I s- skip around. I, I'm
0: delighted. You kidding? Please jump, skip, Bill skips.
1: Um, I was reading <laughs> um, "Centennial" by Mitchner, mm. which is
0: I know Mitchner. I haven't read "Centennial." It's
1: bigger than the Old Testament. Uh-huh.
0: What's the it New about? Testament.
1: It's about a guy. <clears throat> it's about a guy who lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and it's very religious, and he is disgraced in some way. And I think it has to do with the young woman. And so he gets out of there. He's kind of run out. He leaves town before he's run out of town. I don't remember what his disgrace was. Anyway, there's this young girl that goes with him. And um, um, he doesn't want to take her. And he's heading west, Go west young man. Mm. And he's 19, and the girl's like, 14 or something like that. And she tags along because she's got an equally heinous family situation. And so they run away together and it takes them forever. And they keep going West on a wagon train and it's all their adventures. And she grows up three years later, she blossoms into a woman. They fall in love. They have a baby on the way. And I was reading this while I was doing a mini series called the awakening land, Mm -hmm. which was about,
2: Uh,
1: it was Elizabeth Montgomery, rest in peace, and Hal Holbrook, and it was about the land being opened up. And I'm reading Centennial about these people. And I'm sitting on set, and this woman who, this young girl, who just had a baby, and I was so in love with, oh my God, I was so head over heels in love with her. Anyway, uh, I'm sitting in my chair waiting for them to call me to shoot, and she goes out to gather... Uh, buffalo uh, chips to start the fire. She bends down on a rattlesnake, bites her in the neck, and she's dead in a page, one page, quarter of a page. And they go, ready to shoot, Bill. (laughs) And I stood up and I said, "I, I, I... I can't. Oh, I, I need a moment here. She's dead. She's dead. Uh, I mean, I was a mess, Yeah. and I had to talk and stuff like that. It took everything I had to get myself back together.
0: Isn't it? I find it so incredible when books have the power <sighs> to move you to tears. I expect—I'll cry in a commercial. Like I expect the the visual thing to do it. I I, I fully I and freely expect You're that. Yeah, but a book. A, when a book, when black and white typeface can, can do that to you, mm. it's staggering to me. I read a book uh, during pandemic called Hamlet, which is by Maggie O'Farrell. And it's about Hamlet? Hamlet's son. Uh, so no it's about Shakespeare's son, <laughs> whose name was Hamlet, who died. The only fact we know about him is that he died aged 15 of the plague. And the following year, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. And the L and the N were interchangeable in the old times. So it's quite possible that Hamlet, his son, was also called Hamlet. And so Maggie O'Farrell has taken what little is known about Shakespeare and written this novel. I think it will be a classic forever, forever. I, I have pre- I have bought so many copies of this novel and given it to people. If I'd known it was going to come up, I'd have pressed one into your hands today. Oh, yeah. It's so exquisite. Shakespeare is never named once. He is known as the writer. You never, ever once call him by name. And it's written from his wife's point of view. So it is about a being a wife of a writer, which may be perhaps why it resonates. It's about raising children. It's about raising children in a plague and keeping them safe. Oh dear it, it, and the moment, and I've already told you what happens. Cause everybody knows what happens. His son dies. When the sun dies, I had to put the book down to like heavy sob, not just pretty cry like you do in a movie where one tear rolls down your seat, like ugly, heavy sob cry. Mm -hmm. It undid me. And I kept thinking like, what a thing. Yes, of course I need the release. Everyone needs the release and the excuse in this moment in history. But what a thing that a book could do this to you. And a book that's about people 400 years ago. (laughs) It was just staggering to me it really really was so I'm I'm with you and I think that's why I came up with the podcast was I love talking about books I love reading I love recommending books I love hearing recommendations but what I really love is when people tell you about the books that affected them that that's why I came up with the show right to talk about the books that changed them that made mm-hmm. them realize oh I'm a reader as in mm-hmm. your case or oh I a book can make me feel, a book can make me weep. I didn't know a book could do that. You know, a book can put me inside the carcass of a dog and allow me to walk and experience that. Like, I, I just think it's I it's think a unique of the, property of the written word.
1: I can't imagine writing a novel.
0: Mm. Um, You've written many scripts, though.
1: I've written many scripts. It's a different
0: animal. Mm, it is. But what I was going to say was,
1: The I the first thing I ever wrote was a play, a one act play, and the greatest joy I've ever had in the theater was when I wrote the play. There I was with my typewriter,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: figuring out what's funny, and I put it on paper, and then I gave it to someone, the director and then the actors took it over so i was at least twice removed from this thing and when i s- sat in the house for the first performance and the joke that i'd thought of and put on paper had been mm. translated through a lot of different minds and the audience laughed mm. i thought this is this is the greatest high there is mm. this is alchemy mm. That I, it could survive mm-hmm. that far, and the mm-hmm. joke that I thought was funny mm-hmm. was
2: funny. Mm-hmm. I
0: loved it. Yeah, it's like Hitchcock said, right? Being, being, uh, he said, being a director is like the bet, the greatest train set you will ever get to play with. <laughs> and I, th- I think of that too because, you know, Davy, my husband's, writes and created, you know, all all kinds of different things, and he says the same thing. Like the the fact that I sat in my office and scratched this up on a whiteboard. And now some poor fucker is having to build this giant train station I envisaged or the like crazy, whatever, you know, it's, and then it it's, works. Like, yes. And someone's going to pay you for it. It's mad. All right. Let's go into your next book. Um, your next book, I did not know. And I really liked researching this one. Your next book is, uh, electric universe, how electricity switched on the modern world which was written by David Badarnis and came out in 2006. Tell me about this book and what, what was, what was the revelation for you or personally or intellectually because of this book?
1: Um, Felicity's sister, Grace sent it to me because she said, Oh, Bill, I think you'll like this book. <laughs> and I read it in a sitting perhaps too. This is what I love about it. First of all, I love books My favorite kind of book is something that reveals history to me that I did not know Hmm. or reveals something to me that I didn't know how it worked Hmm. or reveals something to me about how we got here. And this guy did a great job. It's the story of electricity. It basically starts... With the big bang it's It starts with all this Energy In the cosmos And then he The way he deals with it Is like a potboiler Tongue Tongue in cheek To the max He makes breathtaking leaps In the story And he tells this story from really off-kilter kind of ways You know, a guy's just trying to get laid and he invents NASA, you know, <laughs> um, he, he, the way he tells the story is a page turner. But first of all, electricity, there's a case to be made. It's the biggest thing that ever happened to us, figuring out how to use electricity. And if you don't believe me, just turn off the electricity and watch what happens to this world. Mm-hmm and um, the way he tells this story as I said takes these great leaps and I'm not I was never a good student and I'm not a huge reader I'm not intellectual that way but what he told through through telling this story what he revealed is that back in 1200, some guy was wondering why the electric spark would do that. And he wrote a paper on it. And then 200 years later, somebody read the fucking paper (laughs) and said, I was wondering how that worked and applied that to what he was doing. And then another hundred years later, somebody said, Oh, we don't. We can stop experimenting. They already figured it out, mm-hmm. and we've made these great mm-hmm. leaps because it's the way. Because man writes mm-hmm. and man reads, we build on each other. And I've never seen it laid out mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got these libraries full of all this stuff. Some people actually go in and read all that mm-hmm. crap. Mm-hmm. And it saves them a huge amount of time. They don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time. Right. You ever hear this phrase that 90% of what mankind knows to date has been learned in your and my lifetime. Wow. The pace of exploration and knowledge Mm -hmm. is growing exponentially. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: When I was born in 1950, it was a just a tiny fraction mm-hmm. of what we've learned since who I've
0: been born. Mm-hmm. And just, it's accelerating. And and it's uh, without limits if we if it's to be believed. So the guest I did just before you was Chris Anderson, who is the head of TED, and his which was wonderful and, and his books are fantastic and diverse and all about knowledge and how we acquire knowledge, how the brain works, how the universe works. So researching his books, I literally felt my brain grow. Like I, I it swole up by the end of that week. Yes. And one of the things, one of the little sort of gems that I took, that I loved was the observation that one of his authors, who's a guy called David Deutsch, came up with, uh, made, which is that he considers knowledge knowledge, Infinite, and he considers knowledge to be the the single most important thing about human beings, greater than electricity, greater than gravity. Not just human beings, the single greatest factor in the universe is the knowledge, because knowledge is potentially infinite, which means potentially we have the scope to populate Mars, go to other planets, yes, uh, distort time, defeat gravity. De- in
1: theory, we can know everything.
0: Right. So probably not, but right. in theory. But what he was saying on the smaller scale, because I've just butchered his theory beautifully right there, but here's what he says on the smaller scale, which is what's extraordinary about humans is that, and the reason that we need democracy so badly over other forms of government is that for critical theory, for science to keep evolving, we need a system whereby people are allowed to critique each other. Not politically, but in terms of science, where you can go, that's wrong, and I can demonstrate why it's wrong, or that's correct, and let me add to it. But that free freedom to express yourself and add to someone else's theory or critique someone else's theory requires a non oppressive form of government. Absolutely. It requires so. That's why he says knowledge has progressed in such fits and starts because the middle ages come or the church comes or oppressive regimes come. And we don't have the ability to critique each other. We have this flourishing during the Renaissance because then we have all these sort of principalities and little States where people can freely discuss and these sort of um, just as he calls them fits and starts of scientific progress, but it requires peace not war and it requires uh, a non oppressive regime in order for that to flourish in order for scientific discovery to flourish so just i'm expanding on what you were saying but i think it's such an interesting thing that that we don't think of when we think of oh yeah no we stand on the shoulders of giants we stand on the shoulders of giants who were allowed to express themselves during yes. the time they lived in you know
1: and i think the reason uh Groups like Al-Qaeda, they want to put the genie back in the bottle, knowledge back in the bottle. They want to go back to a time when it was simpler Mm -hmm. safer.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And they're idiots. You can't. Because Mm -hmm. even through the dark ages, I mean, there was advancement and people were wondering, why does that happen? How does that work? This guy does it in Electric Universe. He does it so well, too, because he's so irreverent with the way he tells Uh the story. Um, there's, um, there's a, there's so many examples in there. I've given that book to more people than any other book. Um, well, just as an example, we figured out how to make batteries so we could have electricity when we need it. And somebody figured out if you take a piece of iron and wrap copper around it, you can make a magnet. And somebody realized you could turn the magnet on and off by just taking the battery away. And so somebody realized we could make a piece of metal go like that. Somebody invented Morse code. Somebody invented the telegraph. Somebody said, let's hook up cities. Uh, Ultimately, they said, let's pass a cable from here to Europe. And this is what they discovered. Everything runs through copper wire, but when it goes far enough, you lose all the signal. So where's it going? And no one knew, but they discovered if you insulated the wire, you could make it go farther. But everybody kept saying, "But where does it go? So some people said, well, it must be able to travel through the air. So these guys in uh, the early 20s were trying to make telegraph without a wire. One of them was in New Jersey. One of them was in New York. I'm butchering the story. No. It's kind of true. Good. And they were trying to figure out how to close the key and do telegraph key. And then every once in a while, the thing would stop working. And um, they'd send a signal, and the signal would come back and close that key. And he looked out the window, and a big iron ore ship was going up the Hudson. (laughs) And it hit the hull of this big ship, and it (laughs) bounced back.
0: Amazing.
1: Hum, he says to himself. Cut forward to Hitler invades Poland. And uh, they're going to, he's making plans to invade Great Britain after Dunkirk. The British, this guy that said, Why is it bounced back and how can I use that? How can I sell it? Mm-hmm. So the Brits had radar. So the poor uh, Spitfires that were outnumbered 40 to 1, mm-hmm. here would come the Luftwaffe. And the few spitfires they had were there to meet him and just blasted him out of the fucking skies. Mm. And Hitler was sure that it was um, it was spying. And a lot of people got killed. So the Brits put out a word, No, we have hired the people with the best ears in in Great Britain, and they've got these great cones, and they can hear the little father <laughs> take across take up, take off across the county. And then they put out another one. We have the best eyes, the people with the best vision. We've got huge binoculars, and we feed them on a (laughs) carotene-rich diet, which makes their eyes even more acute. And to this day, your parents say, eat your carrots are good for your eyes. They're not good for your eyes. It was disinformation. (laughs) So the Germans then got radar, and the war dragged on and on and on. But that's why Operation sea lion never took place because they couldn't control the skies over great britain mm. and that's because that guy wondered why does it bounce back and how can i use that and he makes these great leaps just like yeah, i'm doing it's great. So then they get to the enigma code and they can't break it the germans are good at code and the way they did it is they had a warehouse full of women thousands mm. thousand of them. And they would take the Enigma code message and pass it through desk to desk to desk. And each woman was in charge of a letter. And they would all go, no, no, no. Somebody would go, yes, I see a relationship. I think I know what an A is. And then somebody else would say, I might have an E. And they'd pass it all the way through. When they were done, they'd start again based on the A and the E. Mm. And they would pass it through and through and through until they would break the code. Mm. And then the Germans would change the code and the game began all over again. Well, some guy who was in charge of that said, you know, all those women are doing is switching. Yes or no. Yes or no. If you can make a switch small enough, you can make a machine to do this. So at that point, after World War II, everything in the world was divided into two things, things that conduct electricity and things that don't, and there were no exceptions. Until silicon, hmm. it can be manipulated to do both. Hmm. Thus, Silicon Valley. Hmm. Thus, tiny switches.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Thus, zeros and ones. Thus, computers. Thus, the moonshot. Thus, the internet.
0: Amazing! I don't need to read the book. You just read the book. You just gave me the <laughs> book. That's amazing.
1: But he's funny. Yeah. He
0: no, that. I love no, that. Was beautiful. You, you did that so incredibly. I'm still stuck on Enigma code because that. Is famously this beautiful book, Enigma, and it all took place at Bletchley Park in England. And my detail, the detail that I love about it is the way they recruited those women was um, through the crossword. And anyone that was good at the crossword, they literally reached out and people, you were invited to submit your crossword responses from the Times of London. And people who were excellent at the crossword were invited to come on top secret and work at Bletchley And they Park. did it.
1: They broke the code regularly, yeah. but yeah. then the Germans
0: just changed it. But then we won. So there we are. That's good. Uh, <laughs> let's do your next book. Your next book. Ah, this is very exciting. I was very, very pleased to see this. Your next book, unsurprisingly, is the great play American Buffalo by David Mamet, mm. which was published in 1975. Do you know you have not only the accolade of being the first, bringing the first Mamet to my podcast, uh-huh. yours in close to 30 episodes now is the first play. Hmm. Uh, So that was very, very exciting to have my first play on the podcast. I know you and know your history, but others might not. Uh, So I'm just going to say you originated the role of Bobby in this production, the first ever production in Chicago. Is that Right. right? Yeah. And you've since played it again at the Donmar with the Atlantic. Yeah. I got to play teach. You got to play teach. Yeah. Um, all right, this is. I have so many questions. I'm not even sure where to begin. But tell me when you first got the first copy of American Buffalo in your hands, and did you know Dave was writing it? I know you were friends, and you were working together already. Well, set it's the scene for others that don't tra- know. You. Dramatic. Um,
1: we we being Stephen Chapter, uh, my writing partner, and Dave. Well Stephen and I. We'd met Dave in college. He was our teacher, and we moved all around ended up in Chicago because Dave had just done a play there. And, um, we were trying to, uh, rent a theater and Dave was supposedly the head of our board or whatever it was. But at any rate, to make a long story short, he disappeared. He just disappeared. He lived at the hotel Lincoln and was very mysterious. And, um, I mean, he was gone long enough that a couple of people said, have you seen Dave? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, um, if memory serves, it was three weeks. And he came to our apartment, Stephen and I lived together. And he flops down this script printed on that yellow full you
2: know? Mm-hmm.
1: Printed on a, I mean, uh, typed on a Selectronic, mm-hmm. an original copy. He said, Billy, read this. Uh, uh, I think it might be the greatest play of this decade. And I said, okay. <laughs> And I have never been the same. When I read it, oh, I geez. just thought, first of all, I never heard anybody who could put music in words like he could. Mm-hmm. The music was beautiful, and it's this Chicago music, mm-hmm. that dialect. I didn't – I was shocked that he would say this stuff. I thought, you can't say those things.
0: The profanity or just – The profanity. Right. Um,
1: profanity, racism, misogyny mm-hmm. – all of that stuff, it sounded like everything that I lived with every day, but I had never seen anyone have the courage to put it on paper. Mm -hmm. I know Lenny Bruce did it, but this was different Mm -hmm. because it was, it was beautiful. It just had a rhythm to it. I've done a lot of Dave's plays and whenever I meet somebody who's done American Buffalo Mm -hmm. We'll start saying lines to each other.
0: Really? Because
1: they literally give you pleasure to uh, speak them out loud. Uh-huh. Just like a pop song mm-hmm. when you get to the chorus. It's just fun. It feels uh-huh. good coming out of your mouth. Uh-huh. And um, it was an eye opener. Mm. And um, not just to me, I think Dave's writing changed everything.
2: Mm-hmm. I think
1: everybody. Everybody changed their style. Everybody suddenly thought, oh my God, we can do anything. Mm, I agree. And oh my Lord, the, it has to be beautiful. Mm. There's a, you know, for years, people would say, he just listens to conversations and writes them down. It's not, you know, that's because they're ignoramuses, because yeah. no, he doesn't. He writes an iambic pentameter. It's beautiful. Mm. When you rec- when you memorize his stuff, if you paraphrase it and say it wrong, to me, I've always thought it's like walking across the living room and you trip and you go, what the hell? And you look back to see what went wrong. Uh-huh. That's because if you put a word out of place, it's okay. But you trip. It yeah. just doesn't have the same rhythm. Mm-hmm. The music just got bollocks up a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Interestingly, everyone, everyone thinks Dave has got to memorize the words exactly as I said, I'm not a comma out of place. It's not true at all. Really? As a matter of fact, he's famous for saying, well, if you keep saying it wrong, I must have read it wrong. <laughs> um, he's not precious about it. The reason everybody gets that is that actors, the second they read it, they, they go, I want to say every one of these words. I've never read anything better than mm-hmm.
0: this mm-hmm.
1: because sometimes you rewriting the story is important. The words are, they're not that important.
0: How much did it change from the manuscript that you read to the one that you was in production? That was published.
1: Um, 15%. Wow. You know, not, 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 much. not a ton. Um, the ending vexed him and, um, when we first did it, we try a new ending three times a week. Really, and some of them really didn't work.
0: How significantly and how significant of no? Been? It's
1: just the you know the punchline, just uh-huh. the punchline, uh-huh. the last couple of words, uh-huh. trying to close it up right. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it was back in the day um, that he was a lot more collaborative. So Greg Mosher was there, and the actors would say, "I didn't like it," somebody would say, "I did like it," and he just kept trying stuff because uh-huh. we had previews and. He didn't hold it preciously. And, uh-huh. and then it, uh, it went to Broadway, it went to other productions, and it morphed
0: even more. But it's basically what he wrote. Hmm. Did you agree? when you Do you remember reading it and being like, oh, yeah, this is this is the greatest play that's been written in the last years." Yeah, it's like, Really?
1: The first play of his I ever read, I was in college, and it was... An Early Drive to Sexual Perversity in Chicago. And it mm. was written for our class. It was a collection of perhaps 18 blackouts. No,
0: he wrote it for your class, that play.
1: Yeah.
0: No way I didn't know that.
1: And then when he went to Chicago, Stuart Gordon, a great Chicago director, he took it down uh-huh. to a smaller cast and gave it a through line. Uh, but you know, it was a collection of blackouts.
0: Oh, and
1: wow. um, that's really when I thought, oh, my God, I'm... In the presence of genius.
0: Wow. And he was, he's only, what, a couple of years older than you? And yeah. he was your teacher at, yeah. at Goddard? Is Goddard that? College. Goddard College, right, yeah.
1: Spelled Goddard, but we pronounced it Goddard and they could speak.
0: <laughs> that must have been a crazy dynamic, no, to have someone just a couple of years older than you who, who had also been at that college, right, and then gone away and... Dennis it training. was
1: not much of a dynamic. He is so smart. He's the smartest guy I've ever met. Mm. I think he's rooted to and genius.
0: Mm.
1: He's so good. I've seen him do it. You could say, write an Emily, M- Emily Dickinson poem, and he'd go off in the corner and come back in 15 minutes, and it would full stop. You could say, now write E.E. E. Cummings. Now write Steinbeck. Now right. Can
0: I be around when you play this game with him? I'm not I'm not going to participate, but I'd like to just sit in the corner and watch. But I've seen him do it.
1: Wow. He can imitate anyone. Wow. He's, he's so magnificently well read. Mm. He might do this. I'll, I'll make the introduction. Um you should give yourself a couple of weeks to prepare because he's read everything ever written.
0: Oh my god. Well, and I, he can quote it. Oh my god. Um if he were willing I would be Absolutely honoured to have him. But I'm curious, how did he, how did reading, I mean, I know where, I know what, how enormously formative he's been to you as a person in your life and as a playwright and as a, as an actor. Did he, did doing this play open you up as an actor? Did it change you? Did it change you just in knowing what was possible on the stage? Do you remember it being, I mean, it's I guess it's hard for you to peel apart the influence that he has had on you creatively overall. I just wondered whether this play in particular there was a way to if you, if it pointed to a moment that anything shifted for you as as your understanding of yourself as an actor or what was possible
1: Well was a writer, his think, his theories and his knowledge of acting. Is is singular. Mm-hmm. I, I think he he studied with Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse, mm-hmm. and he knew Strasbourg and um, he knew the Stanislavsky method inside and out. And he added to it and took away from it. And I think changed everything. Mm. Basically I start talking about acting technique and I see the will to live just different
0: people. No, 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 no. I know about the acting technique and I, and I, I'm, I I don't need you to break it down for me. I, I meant, I meant, I guess I meant, I wondered what, and maybe the question is redundant. I, I wondered whether this play, whether you, the act of performing this play shifted something for you or allowed you to see something differently or in yourself or being Bobby, or maybe again, revisiting it as teach. I mean, do you have ambitions to play Don one day? Like, does, does, does the play hold more than a sentimental place in your heart?
1: Yes. Um, I saw him as he worked on the play, he would cut scenes that, uh, I would do anything to him yeah. and he threw him out uh-huh. that's how good he is right It underlined for me the notion that at the end of the day, all the reader, all the audience wants to know is what happens next yeah. just tell me what happens next. <laughs> um, if it's beautiful, stunning writing, that's a good thing mm-hmm. but It's not necessary right really badly written plays have done very well because they tell a walloping good story. Sure. And I think the same with novels. Mm. Um if if you can keep surprising people with the plot, um, that's a good story. Mm-hmm. The world according to Garp. Mm. I
2: mean,
1: I didn't see that blowjob. You know, I didn't see it coming. And Helen Keller could have seen that coming. It was, you know, he so suckered me in. So I got the whole idea of staying ahead of the audience mm. and uh, this notion that the words are not the story. Mm. The words might be the story, but they're not necessarily the story because mm. people rarely say exactly what they mean.
0: Almost never. No.
1: Sometimes because they don't know, sometimes because they don't want to, sometimes because their subconscious is just roaring out Uh and they can't stop it. Mm -hmm. That was revelatory to Mm. me.
0: You have it pulled out there. Will you read me any part that you love or that comes to
1: I've got to start with the beginning because it is the greatest entrance any character has ever had in the history of characters making entrance. <laughs>
0: I'm so glad you picked it, I'm so thrilled I didn't want to presume, I'm so glad alright, whenever fucking
1: Ruthie, fucking Ruthie, fucking Ruthie, fucking Ruthie fucking Ruthie, fucking Ruthie I come into the riverside to get a cup of coffee, right, I sit down at the table Grace and Ruthie, I'm going to to just a cup of coffee, so Grace and Ruthie's having breakfast and they're done plates, crust of stuff all over, so we'll shoot the shit Talk about the game. So, down I sit. Hi, hi. I take a piece of toast off of Grace's plate. And she goes, help yourself. Help myself? I should help myself to half a piece of toast. It's four slices for a quarter. I should have a nickel. Every time we're over at the game, I pop for coffee. Cigarettes, a sweet roll. Never say a word. Bobby, see who wants what, huh? A fucking roast beef sandwich. Am I right? (laughs) Ah, shit. We're sitting down. How many times do I pick up the check? But no, because I never go and make a big deal out of it. It's no big deal. And flaunt, like this one's on me, like some bust-out asshole. But I naturally assume that I'm with friends. And don't forget who's who when someone gets behind a half a yard or needs some help with, huh? Some fucking rent or drops enormous piles of money at the track or someone's sick or something. Only. And I tell you this, Don, only. Only. And I'm not, I don't think, casting anything on anyone. From the mouth of a southern bull dyke asshole ingrate of a vicious nowhere cunt can this shit come. And I take nothing back. And I know you're close with me. <laughs>
0: So great! It just is so fun in the mouth as you say. It's so fun. It's so it is
1: great.
2: So fun. Fucking Ruthie. Fucking Ruthie. Okay, fucking you want to hear
1: the story of this? Yes, I
0: want to hear the story of this.
1: So we live on uh, Schachter and I have an apartment on uh, Clark Street on the Near North Side. Dave lives at the Hotel Lincoln, and his apartment had a Murphy bed. When that was down. He had to go out in the hall to change your mind. I mean, it was a tiny, and he would not. He had money, but he only lived there. And um, and when he had his watch on, he was winning. He played poker. Mm-hmm. And when his watch was gone, Dave lost. <laughs> and uh, So he'd come to our house. He'd go, Billy, Stevie, I got an idea. Stevie, you should call Tony and he'd go to the refrigerator and pull out cheese and a block of bread. And he would say, and he's carving it off And the bread stuffing You go over and call again, tell him I talk to you And Billy, I don't know I do And we'd do that, you know Boom, 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 boom Until the cheese was gone And then he'd say, okay, I got a, I got an appointment Which means he had a date He hmm. was meeting someone And he would leave When the cheese was gone And he would come in all the time to do this And it especially when he didn't have his watch Sure And um, one day he comes in and he's going, So, Billy, what you should do? And I go, Help yourself. And he stopped for 60 seconds looking at me with those eyes. And he goes, He gives a speech. He basically said, You should be ashamed of yourself. I'm the one who picks up the check. Fuck you. You should be ashamed. And he storms out of the apartment. And I call him up and I won't answer his phone. And I finally get to him a day and a half later. I say, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm an asshole. Yeah, but you didn't. I said, no, I have no legs to stand on. You're generous. I'm so sorry, Dave. I'm so sorry. And, he said, oh, no, no. and we kissed and made up. I didn't hear another word about it until I picked up.
0: <laughs> it's so good. You're fucking Ruthie. I'm fucking Ruthie. It's so great.
1: And then he gave you the. It's key. my claim to fame. It's so. It's going to be on my tombstone. Great. I was just going to say. You said, help yourself.
0: No, we all, just on your tombstone is going to be fucking Ruthie That's what we're going to ask for. It's so good. Um. All right, I could do a whole podcast on American Buffalo, but we've got one book left, or two, because you you put them both down. Your last two books are Salt, A World History by Mark Kolansky, which was published in 2002, and Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World, uh, which was published in 1997, which is also by Mark Kolansky. So we've talked about your love of the what they call I think in publishing they call it a commercial history book where, or, or, a, or a meta history book a commercial narrative where they take you know you take your single entity and through that prism view the world tell me what, what it is about these books and about this kind of book that you love that makes sense of the world for you um,
1: I don't remember who gave me salt but um, you know he's not worth his salt. That uh, has, I've always loved that phrase Mm -hmm. that salt was that rare. Mm -hmm. And, um, I read salt and, um, I just loved it and talked about the salt trades and Mm -hmm. how, um, it was wealth and how civilization grew along the salt trades, Mm -hmm. the roots. So I, I bought cod and, um, his premise basically is that a couple of things came together at once along with salt because we were trading salt and so Great Britain had salt which we didn't have a lot of Mm. normally Um, and the British Navy which was uh, second to none in the world and so the fishing fleets would go farther and farther out And when they finally went up into the Newfoundland area, it was reported that the cod were so thick that they didn't even use hooks. They would throw (laughs) buckets in. It was rumored you could walk on the water. Hmm. The cod, the schools of cod were so thick. And cod was perfect for salting. Hmm. And so they would do it on the ship. And his premise is that Western Europe exploded with a combination of the available salt mm. and the cod,
2: mm.
1: more than we could possibly ever eat. And that was the protein that Western Europe needed for the Renaissance. Mm. And you can follow the um, trajectory of the cod catches with the population. Mm. And he made it a good case for it. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense. Mm. And then the other thing I loved about it was that everyone said, all the scientists, and this is mm, maybe early 1800s. They said it would be impossible scientifically to exhaust the cod supplies. Mm. There are so many of them. And, um, by 1890, I think we decimated them. Mm. And they were, they were on the decline. And then, countries like Canada started uh, protecting their cod populations. I love cod, by
0: the way. Mm, Me too. My favorite fish. This is my only trouble with the book was that it supplied all kinds of really good cod recipes, and I felt like this was no way to dissuade me from eating cod was by giving me recipes. But anyway, yeah, me too. Anyway.
1: Um, Fast forward So they would extend their 3 miles Out to 7 out to 15 miles To protect the cod populations Newfoundland, Canada All around that area And the the North Sea Where the cod were still pretty plentiful And There was a war in 1967 Between Great Britain And Canada He called it a war I don't know if it was a declared war Mm -hmm. It never turned into a shooting war Mm -hmm. But it was getting dangerous mm. because the British uh, trawlers would come along with their great drag nets and um, they would uh, uh, process the cod on the ships and they could, they could just take hundreds of thousands of ton of cod before they'd have to go back to port. And so the Canadians would uh, send their destroyers and drive over the lines mm. and cut them. Mm. And it was getting pretty tight. Mm-hmm and a lot of threats were going back and forth and then in i think it was in 67 the brits were in the world cup and um the prime minister at the time 67 who would that be that would be um whoever was prime minister called the prime minister of great britain in the city how you doing listen we're in the world cup could we suspend the war until the World Cup is over, And he said, "Well, of course, of course, we're not savages. <laughs> so they stop cutting the lines until the last game of the World Cup, and then they resume the war. <laughs> you gotta love you got <laughs> love the civilized world. It's
0: right? so true. It's a bit like that. Alleged football game that took place on Christmas Day between the trenches, right? There's a, yeah. Didn't, didn't they play in, in No Man's was, Land? That story
1: is of the Civil War, too. They played baseball. Right. Someone met, wrote a novel about it. It's not clear
0: whether it actually yeah. happened. But. Yeah. I loved it. It was fun. I, I, have read, I had read Salt and I had not read Cod. I leafed through Cod when I saw it on your list. And one of the things that I loved about Salt, and I wrote this down, was that Salt is, is not just, I mean, the reason it's so valuable to us is that it's, the body doesn't make salt. We can't, and yet it's sodium is absolutely essential to the human, but our nerves won't function without it. Our muscles don't function without it. And yet the body does not make it. So we have to find exterior sources of salt and there's complete failure in our systems if we don't get it. And therefore, that's why it becomes so prized. Not just because it makes food taste better; it actually keeps us oh, yeah. alive. And that the um, and that every culture finds salt differently. So the Maasai uh, hunter gatherers will uh, drink the blood of their livestock mm-hmm, in order to cool. get right in order to get their sodium. And I, I just thought it was such an interesting thing. Like all these, I guess it's an expanding on what you're saying that all these. Um, Huge advances that we make are so fundamentally come back down to our biology over and over, right? Our yes. evolution, our survival as a species, what we've needed, what we've needed physically in order to yes. get to where we are. Hunters will put a salt lick
1: out and just wait until the the deer come to the salt lake.
0: Right. And that um and you who love words so much, I was thinking. What a wonderful book that must have been for you, but all the expressions and all the words that we get. Oh, my God, a whole culture Salad, because the Romans liked salt on their vegetables. Salary, because that was what a Roman soldier was paid with, Made was his salt. salt. And that hence, worth being worth your salt or not. The other one that I loved is the word salacious, which means... Uh, Lack of salt. No, no it, too means, much salt. it means someone who... It's for specifically for a man who is salty, meaning... Salacious. salacious. Who has a man who is who is in the salted state is literally (laughs) what it means, which is so he's a salty dog. Right, right. It's so good. I loved it. It's such a good one. Um and the other one that I loved was his idea that the salt um that salt has been instrumental possibly in the way that the roads are spread out across uh North America. That originally These, the tracks and paths that stretch across North America are salt licks, uh, and the paths that animals took between salt licks across this vast continent. And so those paths get developed. And so villages crop up eventually where animals gather and where salt lakes are. And ultimately he posits. So a highway and the whole network that connects this whole continent is possibly down to, well, not possibly in his book, it's definitively, but I would argue possibly (laughs) is based on water. We
1: need that. Right.
0: You'd think. Yeah. And,
1: that's why New York is such a mess when you get down. Because <laughs> those are all just game paths at the point, you know. Right. Wasn't a lot of thought and, what, and where to put those streets. Yeah, sure. You I know don't... what else I love that people do? I just loved it when there's an advance like the magnet. Uh-huh. And we use it and we create machines that we actually use and make our lives better sometimes long before we know why it happens Mm. that technology sometimes is pretty far out in front of knowledge Mm. yeah (laughs) and perhaps the internet is a good example of Mm -hmm. it you know maybe it's not as good as we think it is and maybe it's not going to do all the wonders we think it will do you know this there's a do you know Fairmont's Last Theorem?
0: Yes. A Wonderful You've book, seen that too. Book? Wonderful book. Just book. killed me. Yeah.
1: And um, my favorite part of it were the Japanese who thought they'd figured out Fairmont's Last Theorem. And then when the guy did figure it out, you know that British fellow? I don't remember um, it well enough. They interviewed these Japanese guys, and one of them killed himself because they um, couldn't get any traction mm. for all this work they'd done. And his partner said, well, my first thought was, I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved Fairmont's last theorem, that we couldn't prove the theorem, but we'd gone all the way to a nuclear device, Mm. still not knowing
0: exactly how it worked. Mm. Relativity, right? I mean, that was a theory for, still is. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so so much. Thank I love you for your you're, that
1: you're books. doing this. Oh. I've listened to a couple, and I just love it.
0: Oh, thank you. I really deeply love doing it. I love I love getting to sit and talk to you in this way for an hour. I love getting to talk to people I don't know. I love familiarizing myself with books that I don't know. I hadn't read Call of the Wild since I was ten. Like this was just
1: yeah.
0: delicious and so lovely to good witness. This is good. <laughs> now I've got to find out how to make a living out of it. Everybody's. I use the term loosely. <laughs> well, that was a treat. I mean, if nothing else, you got to hear him do American Buffalo. And if, like me, you haven't seen live theatre in nearly two years, that alone is worth the listen. I wonder do you like reading plays? Uh, not just watching them, but reading them. Have you ever? I love seeing a play and then going out and buying a copy of it afterwards so that I can see what was on the page and then what the cast, designer, and director brought to the words on the page. It can be so astonishing to see how much the writer has given you and then so revealing to see what the collaborative efforts of all those other imaginations also brought to the stage. I wonder what plays have you enjoyed on or off the page? I'd love to hear. Throw your thoughts on our Instagram page bookish with Sonia. My thanks to Bill for sharing your home and your books and your time and your talent with all of us. And thank you to Flickr for keeping the house quiet and nudging him so that this interview actually happened. Please find his books and all the others that we mentioned on the website or in the show notes and don't forget while you're there to like, subscribe and review. This episode was produced, like all of them, by the fantastic Brie Weiss. Please join me next week for my guest, Krista Tippett, the host of my other favorite podcast, On Being.